If you take your Bibles this morning and open them to Revelation chapter 12, we find ourselves here in Revelation chapter 12, and I, I just want to say at the outset, we, we are reminded of this often, I think, in our minds, but oftentimes we forget it, that what you have right there on your lap, between the leather that mankind has taken to hold the pages together, is the very Word of God. Um, it's not just a book. It's not just a piece of material that we find nice stories in and interesting things. This is, in fact, the Word of God. This is the the Word from the very One who created you, who took you and formed you in your mother's womb, and by His providential plan, through His grace and mercy, has orchestrated the circumstances of your life. So at this very moment, in this very time, in 2014, at this moment on Sunday morning, here in Chester, New Hampshire, you would be here to hear Him speak. This is God's Word. And so we approach it with that in our mind. In Revelation chapter 12, we have reached what we know to be, in our own language at least, an interlude. An interlude in the telling of what is behind what is taking place on earth during the time of the tribulation. This is not a stopping of the tribulation time so that it's a seven year period and you have a moment of two years or three years or whatever it is and then a stopping of time so that this stuff can happen and then it begins again. No, this is simply an interlude in the telling of what is taking place. An interlude for us, it's a, it's a looking back, it's a perspective from a different angle, if you will. And so I pray that you have taken some time in your own Christian walk, in your own daily life, in your own understanding as you have thought through this, to ponder on all that is going on during the tribulation. I hope that you are gaining a greater understanding of our gracious God. I was thinking of that that this week as we were out in Louisville and one of the speakers made a, a, a said something that stuck with me and it was the reality of of what is taking place I think sometimes in evangelicalism when we try to to not offend people with the truth when we try to to minimize the truth or try to soften the truth and we try to highlight the grace of God and and bring the truth of God kind of hide it behind and he made this comment he said when you when you try to highlight the grace of God and shrink the truth you make people blind to both what he was saying is you cannot hide the truth and be gracious You cannot hide the truth and shine the grace of God because it's through the truth that you see the grace of God. And so I hope you have been gaining a greater understanding of the graciousness of God. I I hope you've been encouraged in your own life about the God you love and the God you serve. It's the same God who providentially is orchestrating all of these events. The same God who has predetermined what He is going to do with those whom He has promised, those to whom are His, those He has chosen, they will also be saved just as you have been saved by the grace of Christ. This is the same God who providentially oversees your life and each happening in your life and my life. And He does all of it 
with the greatest care and with the greatest detail. This is the same God from whom you have the word of God that's sitting right there on your lap. And so we return to Revelation chapter 12 and we find ourselves in the final verses of this chapter. And our perspective is placed back to the outworking of Satan against the Jews. Please follow along as I read from verse 13 to verse 17. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent threw water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. And the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon had threw out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. We already understand that verses 7 through 12 that we looked at last time are the background, if you will, for this final confrontation between the woman and the dragon. We already understand from our previous study who the woman and who the dragon and who the male child the male child are. We already understand that the woman is symbolically being an illustration here, a metaphor here for ethnic Israel, the Jewish people, if you will. And the dragon is symbolically describing Satan. In fact, verse 9 tells us that with clarity, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, the very one who deceives the world, the very one who is behind all lies is Satan himself, this is the dragon, and then the male child, of course, is Christ. Verse 5 says she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne, none other than Jesus Christ himself. And so this passage here in verses 13 to 17, this is not history, This is not the history of Israel, if you will, symbolized as it was in verses 1 to 5 that we saw when it began with the reality of the heavens and this one standing, this woman clothed with the sun and she's with child in labor pains and then the dragon is there ready to devour the child and we looked back on the history of Israel, even going farther back even to the Garden of Eden and Satan's vitriol and hatred towards the reality of what God had promised and trying to usurp that through the killing of Christ. It's not a history of all of that. This here in this portion, verses 13 to 17, this is prophecy presented. This is still future. This is, once again, Israel under attack. In fact, that has 
been the very plight of ethnic Israel for its entire existence. I don't want to take the time this morning to go through it all, but if we were to just take a quick Bible survey from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, we would quickly see that the history of ethnic Israel has been one filled with constant persecution and suffering. One nation after another has been the aggressor against Israel. And when you think about it, and when you look at it all, and when you survey it all, there's really a twofold reason for why it's taking place. Ultimately, a one reason that God is allowing it, but really within that, a twofold reason in their history. And one reason is for their training, the training of Israel, and the other reason is for their extermination. This is why they have been under the persecution and suffering since their very inception. In other words, one is a direct product of God's love for them so that they might return out of disobedience back to obedience that He might draw them to repentance and the other is the direct product of Satan's hate for them. And ultimately, Satan's hate for God because it was through Israel that Christ came. The one is for their training, they're drawing back, they're they're drawing them to repentance. The other is born out of the heart of a hatred, one who hates God himself and wants to exterminate them because it's part of God's plan. And Satan hates the plan of God. And so the Bible tells us that God chastens those whom he loves. And so for the good of the Jew and because of their disobedience, Their disobedience in rejecting God, thereby rejecting Christ. God has and is chastening them. It's clear from the Old Testament and clear from the New Testament that the Jews have been set aside so that they might be made jealous through the gospel going to the Gentiles. You Do you realize this? You know Jesus Christ because the Jews were disobedient to God and rejected God and thereby God grafted you in. And so because God loves them and God wants to draw them back, God chastens them, but they are also the target of Satan's hatred. And because they are the target of Satan's hatred, they have been persecuted since the beginning. And here we are in Revelation chapter 12, looking ahead at a time known as the Great Tribulation. And during that time, we are going to see, and we have already seen in just the brief first three and a half years of the tribulation, the nation of Israel suffering its most severe time of persecution. Just so that we don't misunderstand what is going on, even though Israel has suffered in the past, all of that pales in comparison to what is to come. The worst is yet to come. Why? Why? Because God's final fury of wrath will be poured out on all the world. And it is being poured out on any and all who are unrepentant and unbelieving. And during the tribulation, primarily it's the Jews who are there and all those who are unrepentant and all those who are unbelieving, even through that time, will spend eternity in hell itself. Satan's last-ditch effort of extermination will be poured out on all those who believe in Jesus Christ during the tribulation and particularly on the nation of Israel who 
will be ravaged under his power. And so all the attempts at Jewish extermination that Satan has done in the past, that he has been behind in the past, all of them pale in comparison to the final attempt that he will do during the future judgment time called the tribulation. This is Satan's final attempt to end the plan of God. His time is short and he knows it. Remember verse 12 of chapter 12? The devil has come down to you. Woe to you, earth and sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing, knowing he has an intellectual and an experiential knowledge. He knows that his time is short. He knows that he only has three and a half years left. This is his final campaign. This is his final plan to end the promised reign of Jesus Christ. The final attempt to undermine the promised salvation to Israel and the promise of a kingdom. So just so that we're not misunderstanding, so that we're, we're clear in our understanding, during the time of the tribulation, Satan is going to pursue the Jews as a nation with an intent on their complete destruction. He will orchestrate persecution of believing Jews who have come to know Christ during the tribulation. He will move to persecute all the other Jews who might come, who have heard the gospel of Christ during the tribulation, and all of it with the ultimate intent on ending the plan of God for the nation of Israel and for the world through Israel. He'll do all he can to stop the ministry of the 144,000 Verse 17, by the way, we'll refer to that here in a moment, but I believe that's who he's talking about. He'll do all he can to stop their preaching because they are sealed and protected by God. He'll be unsuccessful because of that. So in our study of Revelation up to this point, he has already done everything he could to silence the testimony of Jesus Christ. Remember, he's killed many, the martyrs under the throne back in the sealed judgments. He has attempted and even succeeded because God has allowed him to after a time, but he succeeded on killing the two witnesses. Do you remember that? God allows him to kill them and have supposed power over them, and yet three days later they raise up and are exalted and ascend to the glories of heaven. He's not even finally able to kill them because God causes them to rise from the dead and the world stands in amazement. And so Satan will attempt to slaughter the entire nation of Israel. And God will allow him to have some success because even Satan himself is used by God as an instrument of his wrath. But not all will be lost. You see, that's something that we must understand about God We may not understand all the difficult realities to think through when it comes to God electing purposes and man's responsibility to believe, but the reality is that those whom God has chosen will never be lost. God has preserved his own, the Bible says. And Satan will never be able to remove them, ever. Satan wants them. He wants them all, but God will not let that happen. He will, in fact, preserve the remnant so that they can go into the kingdom alive. 
Just by way of reminder, these are the words of Jesus Christ in John chapter 10, verse 29. I give eternal life to them. That is the sheep. The sheep hear my voice. He's talking about the sheep. I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. That's pretty exclusive language. That's pretty strong language from the creator of all things, from the one in whom has all power and no power over him to say, listen, they... Uh, I give them eternal life and they hear my voice and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Listen, there's words in our English language that you and I cannot rightly do use. Never is one of them. Always is another one. We don't have the power to make that happen, but God does. Remember what Daniel chapter 12 said? concerning Israel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Just listen. Now at the time, that is the time of this great struggle, Michael, the great prince, who is that? Who is Michael, the great prince? Well, he's the one who stands guard over the sons of your people. Michael, the great prince, who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And that and that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Rescued. Sounds like the words of Jesus Christ in John 10. They will never perish. They will not be lost. So there's definitely going to be an onslaught against God's people, Israel. And I believe in a real sense that while Daniel is primarily speaking about the Jews, implicationally, there also there encompasses all those who believe during the tribulation. Not those who believe now. This is the church age. The church is gone. Jew, Gentile, all believers in Jesus Christ who are part of this age. But when the church is gone, the tribulation begins. And all those who believe during that time, Satan is going to attack. So while the tribulation is primarily a time for the Jews and drawing the Jews back to himself, God, through the tribulation, causing them to see His power and know Him and be drawn back out of their disobedience, back to the true worship of God in Christ. There will also be some Gentiles saved there as well. In fact, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, this final period, this final three and a half year period of the tribulation, if you look at Daniel chapter 12 and verse 10, it calls it a time of purging. A time of purging. God is purging His people. He is cleaning out. He is cutting off. He is taking off that which is not real. And they are being purged out. He's cleaning out those who are not His chosen ones. So it's a purging, purifying time. In which those who act wickedly will be judged and purged out. And it begins to happen in earnest at the midpoint of the tribulation. 
Remember the beginning of the tribulation? They signed that treaty with the Antichrist. Who they can worship. The temple's rebuilt. They begin to worship. And then in the midpoint, the Antichrist comes in, ends all the temple worship, sets himself up as God, the abomination of desolation. It's at that point that now the Antichrist is commanding worship. And the real persecution begins. By the way, this is the very same time that Jesus was referring to in Matthew 24. When he's telling his disciples the end will come. Go there for a moment, Matthew chapter 24. This is so important for us to see the connection. And by the way, a little later, we're going to go to Matthew 25 because I want to show you something that is absolutely incredible when it comes to this. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountain. See this fleeing, right? Persecution's coming and the woman now is fleeing. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are on the housetop not go down and set their things out that are in the house. Let them who is in the field not turn back and go get his cloak. It's that bad. It's that urgent. It's that necessary. But woe to those who are who are with child and to those who nurse babies in those days. Pray that the flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. So he's saying it's so urgent, it's so necessary, you don't want anything bogging you down. Why? Because there will be great tribulation, verse 21, such as not has occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, you see, for the sake of the chosen, those days shall be cut short. His days are going to be filled. If anyone says to you, behold, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe him. Why? Because false Christ, false prophets arise and will show great signs and wonders, so to mislead, if possible, even the elect. But behold, I have told you in advance... Therefore, they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go there. If he's in the inner rooms, don't believe them. Why? Because just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of man be. Wherever the corpse is, the vultures gather. He's saying, listen, where the crowd is, where the, that's where the dead is. Be careful. Don't follow the crowd, he's saying. Want to know how a fish is alive in a stream? Especially a stream of dead fish? He's the one swimming upstream. He's not floating downstream with all the other dead fish. Jesus said, you want to know a sign of the time? Uh, where, the, where the dead is, that's where all the vultures gather. This is a purging time time of persecution for the Jews so go back to Revelation chapter 12 Satan has been ejected from heaven 
He no longer has the ability to stand in the presence of God in order to accuse the Christian before God. Remember verse 10? That's that's what he's doing. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before God day and night. The time left for his thousand year imprisonment and his final judgment is now just a few short years away. He is angry. He is vehement on destroying Israel. Satan's goal is to destroy them and to usurp the kingdom of God and to stop the reign of Jesus Christ. But he will not succeed. Why? Because God will protect his people. God will protect those he has chosen. God will and always protects his elect. So here in chapter 12 and verse 13, back in the tribulation we are. Satan has been cast out of heaven. And he's on a rampage. And his hatred is aimed at the Jews. Verse 13, when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. You want to keep an outline. This is what I'm calling this. This is the cause. The cause. This is simply the cause for the persecution. Satan intends at the midpoint of the tribulation to completely destroy. That's been his intent all along, but now it is heightened. He no longer has access to God. He is relegated to the depths of the earth. He, he wants to see them gone. He knows his time is short. And so he is intent on their destruction. And this is the cause for which he is coming. Because it was through Israel that Christ came. You say, how do you know that? Because verse 13 tells us, He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. You see, his real rage isn't for the Jew. His real rage is against Christ. His real rage is against God Himself. And because all previous attempts to have an ultimate fulfillment of his own rage against God to remove Christ because all his attempts have failed in the past. He's demented in his own plan so that he couldn't get the son, so now he's going after the mother. Now he's after the woman through which Christ came. Listen, I want to tell you something. Satan knows his Bible. Satan knows the Bible. He intimately knows the unchanging character of God. Satan knows that. He knows that when God makes a promise, it is as good as accomplished the moment God gave it. Satan knows that. Why? Because Satan knows God cannot lie. Satan knows God cannot change. 
Satan knows that God said to Abraham, you will have a land, you will have a blessing, you will have a people, there will be nations that will come from you, and all the nations will be blessed because of you. Satan knows the promise he made to Abraham. Satan knows intimately the promise God made to David. He knows that he would have an everlasting kingdom, one to sit on the throne until forever and ever. Satan knows that. He knows the covenant that God made, and he banked his own name upon. Psalm 138 says he exalts his word above his very name. Satan knows what is coming to Israel. And so he wants to remove them. And if he can remove them, if he can annihilate the one to whom the promise is given, then he believes he has God in a corner believes the kingdom will never come. And so, verse 13, you have the cause. And now being thrown from heaven, knowing, verse 12, that his time is just short, three and a half years, he plots, he plans, he pursues Israel with the intent of exterminating them. And so, as you move from verse 6 into verse 7, you go from from the prophecy to a literal history. And then when you move from verse 12 into verse 13, you move from that history back into prophecy. So verse 13 picks up where verse 6 left off. Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness. Here in verse 13, the dragon has been thrown down and he's persecuting, he's pursuing. And the cause is because the woman gave birth to the male child. He hates Christ. And so in verse 13, you have the cause. And then secondly, you have this confrontation, which comes in verses 14, 15, and 16. Follow along. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. can stop right there for a moment. Remember Daniel chapter 12? We read it just a moment ago. Daniel chapter 12. Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of his people will arise and the time of distress will never will, will be such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And that time your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be, I love this, rescued That's definite, that's a promise of God, that's born out of the very character of God, it is irrevocable by God, they will be rescued, he has dispatched his archangel Michael to do that, verse 13 says that Satan is going to persecute the woman, persecute means to hunt, to chase, through the means of earthly powers, through the means of government stirred up by the deceiver of the world. Israel is going to be hunted. But supremely and supernaturally, God rescues them. Verse 14 says, And the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. You say, what does this picture? What is this? Where, where is this place? 
what are these eagles? Well, first, the best that we can do is refer back to the imagery of the Old Testament. We let in Scripture bring understanding to us about Scripture. And we look back into the Old Testament. And so turn back to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. And we'll just go to a couple of places because I just want to show you the language. In Exodus chapter 19, Israel has been on the march out of Egypt for now three months. And on that very day, they come to the base of Mount Sinai. They're in the wilderness. They camp there. And in verse 3, Moses goes up to God. Why? Because the Lord called him to come up. Everyone else was to stay away, but Moses gets called up to go to God, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. Verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Just for our own context. He drowned them. Remember that? In the ocean. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Sounds similar, doesn't it? I, I bore you on eagle's wings. Uh, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, how I, how I rescued you, how I, how I brought you through. I was Bearing you up. I was carrying you along on on eagle's wings. God uses this language, this imagery of carrying them on the back of an eagle. He's not saying, listen, I, I sent a whole host of birds down there and you flew across the Red Sea. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, this is just imagery. Like an eagle flies, like the strong bird of that day flies and bears everything, so I too bore you like that. I carried you away and brought you to Myself. God uses it as a picture. I picked you up. I flew you to safety. How did He pick them up? How did He do that? He marched them through the desert. He marched them through the sea. The Egyptian army was drowned in that very sea they crossed, right? That's how he picked them up on eagle's wing. Now turn over to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Right towards the end, Moses, of course, is about to die. Deuteronomy 32, we get similar language. Beginning in verse 9, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land. 
And in a howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the pupil of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them and carried them in his pinions. God, using the language of the very bird he created, and how they operate to encircle their young and protect their young and carry them away even from danger. He is saying, I am like that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm like that eagle to you. I'm the one who protects you. I'm the one who cares for you. I'm the one who carries you out of danger. Now take that imagery in your mind and go back to Revelation chapter 12. Because you find the same imagery, right? God, in some supernatural way, is going to whisk Israel out of harm's way. During the time of the tribulation, God, by His grace and by His supernatural power, by His supernatural protection, just as He did Israel in times past, is going to somehow protect them in a place that He has prepared. The two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman. She's, she's being whisked away in order that she might fly to the wilderness to her place. I don't know where that is. Neither do you. Oh, there's a lot of commentators who try to speculate and tell you where it is. They don't know. No one can be dogmatic as to where this place is. Or even if it is an actual place and the word place there isn't being used metaphorically of them just simply being protected by God even amongst the people of the world during that time. But none of that ought to confuse us. We need to understand that even though Satan is on the hunt for Israel, the point is, is that he will not succeed. Why? Because God rescues them. See, God rescues them, and I believe God uses others to help them. You say, well, why do you say that? Because what verse 14 says after that, She'll be nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. You say, well, well, why does that mean that others will help them? Because if you go to chapter 13 and you look at verses 16 and 17 in the second half of the tribulation, which is with is which this starts at, there is this one world economic system taking place. Notice. This is about the Antichrist. The he there is the Antichrist, the beast. And he causes all, the small and the great, chapter 13, verse 16, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men, the slaves, to what? To be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one should be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark. What's that mark? It's either the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
So there's a one world economic system taking place under the rulership of the abomination of desolation. The, the Antichrist that sets himself up as God, the demagogue on earth at the time trying to rule the day. And he says, if you want to buy or you want to sell, you can do nothing without having a mark. And that mark is either the name of the beast or the mark of the beast on your hand or on your forehead. If you don't have that, you can't buy or sell anything. And yet... Israel, back in chapter 12, verse 14, being protected and cared for by God in some place where she is nourished, cared for supernaturally in a place where she's nourished through this whole time from the presence of the serpent. And I believe this is other believers during that time. You say, well, why do you say that? Go back to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. This is absolutely incredible. Remember chapter 24, Jesus is talking about his return. When does his return happen? It happens after the tribulation. It happens after the tribulation time, after that wrath. Okay? Jesus comes. And in His coming, there will be a judgment by Him. Chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him. This is Christ's return to the earth reign, to reign for a thousand years. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He'll sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Metaphoric language, sheep being believers, goats being unbelievers. And He will put the sheep on His right, the goats on His left. Seems like a simple equation. Christ comes, gathers all the nations, say, okay, all you who are sheep over here, all you who are goats over here. And then the king will say to those on his right, who's on his right? The sheep. Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement. Come and inherit the kingdom. Here's the kingdom. It's for you. You're the chosen. You're the saved. Here's the kingdom. This is all the saved who are still around during that time. All the saved who haven't been raptured. This, is, this isn't church age saints. This is all the saved during the tribulation. You say, how do you know they're saved? Verse 35, for I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, you clothed me. Sick, you invited me, or you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. Remember, this is judgment time. This is under judgment here. This is Christ judging the nations. And these are sheep out of the Gentile world here. 
Remember, the Jews have fled. These are Gentile sheep during the tribulation. And he's saying to them, you're going into my kingdom along with my elect Jews. Why? Because in your heart you showed sympathy to me by helping my chosen people. Look at what verse 35 says. I was hungry, you gave me something to eat, you gave me something to drink, you invited me in, naked you clothed me, sick you visited me, prison you came to me, and the righteous will say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we feed you? When did we give you something to drink because you're thirsty? When, when did we do that? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, naked, clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? When did we do that? We, we don't recall see, do, seeing you. When? Remember, judgment time. Christ has already come. It's after the tribulation. This is tribulation point. This isn't the great white throne judgment that comes after the thousand year reign. When did we do that? In verse 40, notice, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine even the least you did it to me you see I believe that's what Jesus is saying in Revelation 12 I believe Jesus is saying that Gentile believers are going to come to the aid of Israel during that time Gentile believers aren't going to be being pursued like Satan is pursuing the Jews Sure, there'll be persecution for them. Sure, some of them will die even a martyr's death, but they're not going to be pursued like that. They're not going to have to flee. And, 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 and so they're caring for them. I think they demonstrate that they've come to faith in Christ by the way they treat those who are being persecuted by Satan. The least of these. You say, why do you think that? I think that because verse 41 says, Then he will say to those who are on his left, that is the goats, Depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire, which have been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick, in prison, you didn't visit me. And they'll also answer, When did we not see you this way? And he will say, truly, I say to you, to the extent you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal fire, or into eternal life. So these are, these are judged on the side of the persecutors. They're the ones who don't help. They're the ones who don't have affinity for Christ, no love for Christ, no desire for Christ. So back in Revelation chapter 12, the Jews run for their lives as Satan pursues them, trying to slaughter them. And they're going to be helped supernaturally by God through God's non-Jewish people. There's going to be some assistance for the Jews during this time. Verses 15 and 16 said, And the serpent poured water out 
like a like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might be caught so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood and the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth just so you know there's a great debate as to what the water is here i I don't know, is this real water? Is it symbolic of the flood of deception that comes from Satan himself concerning the Jews? Is it some kind of military force that comes like a flood? It's interesting, in the Old Testament you hear language like that, especially like in Psalm 124, 124, where it talks about the nations coming like a flood upon them, almost devouring their very soul. What's the water? I don't know. can only speculate, actually. But we need not let that get us off track of the whole point. The whole point is that during this time of great persecution for the Jews, God is supernaturally rescuing them. Satan is working everything he can do to destroy them. Everything that comes from him is coming like a flood upon them. Everything he does is going to seek, be done to seek to destroy them. And yet, everything he does is thwarted. And God supernaturally is rescuing, you, rescuing them. No matter what Satan does. Doesn't matter what he's allowed to do. God is still sovereign. And those whom God has chosen to save, He saves. So is the word earth here supposed to be taken as the terrestrial ball in which we live and somehow the earth cracks open and actual water is flooded in and the earth opens up and drinks up the river? Or is it symbolically speaking of people on the earth? I don't know. I don't think we can know. But either way, the overall point of John, or the overall point to John and to us from God, is the same. God is fulfilling His promise. God's Word is secure. God's character is secure. God's sovereignty is over it all. God is fulfilling what He has promised to Israel, and they will not be exterminated. Why is Satan after them? Because... Christ came through them. Verse 13, that was the cause. Confrontation is Satan's pursuit of them in every way, and yet God supernaturally is helping them. And then third, the consequence. Third, the consequence. Verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman. That's like a a seated anger. That's not this... uh, Throwing off like a thermometer kind of anger that we saw before. This is that seated hatred of them. He is enraged with the woman. And so he goes off to make war. He can't get to her, so he's going to go off to make war with all of those who are the remnant of her seed. All those who are followers of Christ. These are believers that he's after. Which one? Which believers specifically? Well, I can't be dogmatic about it, but I think the best answer is the 144,000 that are there preaching. 
The 144,000 who are protected by God during this time, who are the supernatural protected preachers of the gospel. And since Satan can't get to Israel, they're hidden by God. We saw that already. He goes after the next best thing. These Jewish preachers who can't be destroyed by Satan, who wouldn't flee because they're protected by God. Verse or Chapter 14, we see them again. Beginning in verse 3, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women. We know they're men because they haven't been in relationships with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Sounds like the same language of chapter 12. The ones who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. I think Satan has a, a new target now. It's those, those 144,000 preachers of Christ. He wants Israel gone, but he can't get to Israel now, so he goes after the next best thing. He hates Christ. And so now you know the cause, you know the confrontation, you know the consequence. Consequences greater rage on Satan. He he's just getting more and more and more and more angry. Any wonder that at the end time he stirs up everybody to come against Christ and Christ crushes it all? You say, What's in this for, for me? What what's all this got to do with me? What does all this mean for me? I mean, I, I live in the church age. I, I, I believe I'll be raptured. I mean, I understand the history of all this and the glorious nature of all this, but what's it going to do about for me? Well, let me just give us one word. One word. Unfathomable. Unfathomable. Not unfathomable in the reality of this all taking place. Don't read this like some kind of mysterious story and, and it's not real and, and it seems pretty fanciful. Don't read it like this. This is unfathomable. Not unbelievable, it's unfathomable. What is unfathomable about this? It is unfathomable to realize after studying all of this that God would save me. It's unfathomable to me that God would save any of us. All of this for the Jew? And, and it's because of the Jews' disobedience that we Gentile believers have been granted salvation? That's unfathomable. How could we ever stand up with pride and go, yeah, I was good enough for God to save. It's so great I'm on His team. Oh God, isn't it great you chose me? It's unfathomable that He chose any of us. It's unfathomable that God would save. It's absolutely unfathomable. God has not forgotten His promise. God cannot forget His promise. God will not change. Every Jew He has chosen will be saved. 
Every one of them. And we're grafted in because of that. In hopes, Paul said, I magnify my ministry in hopes that maybe somehow they'd become jealous. I magnified my ministry to the Gentiles. I preached with clarity to the Gentiles. I preached the gospel to the Gentiles so that in some way, somehow, through the Gentiles coming to Christ, the Jews, my brethren in the flesh, might become jealous of that and turn to Christ. God hasn't forgotten His promise. God's going to save those whom He has promised to save. And you know what the best part is? Satan can do nothing about it. Nothing. He's got no power. No power over God. In fact, the New Testament even tells us as Christians, he who is in us is greater than what? He who is in the world. Christ who is in us is greater than Satan, greater than any power he will ever have. What a glorious reality that God has not forgotten His promise to the Jews because if God had forgotten His promise to the Jews, then what in the world are we grafted into? Praise God that He's sovereign and that Satan cannot thwart His plan no matter what He does. Let's pray. Father, this morning I am overwhelmed. Overwhelmed by the beauty of Your majesty, by the wonder of Your grace by the unfathomable love that You poured out upon us, Your children, even though we did not deserve any of it. Overwhelmed at the sovereign power of You to accomplish everything You have promised and Your Word is always true. Every detail is as solid as it was, it is today as it ever has been. Your Word is exalted above Your name and that every detail, every smallest bit will all be accomplished as You've said. It's unfathomable to us, Lord, that You would have chosen us undeserved as we are that we might be a part of your kingdom and your glory and the spreading of your gospel and that you are using us by way of the salvation you've given us through faith in Christ that your promise to the Jews might be fulfilled we're part of the fulfilling of that promise as our grafting in causes them to be jealous and fathomable the mystery of your grace is so beyond us as heinous as the tribulation will be for those who are there, for the Jew and the ones who are unsaved during this time, Lord, we know that your grace still will abound, that you will still save, that not one of your children will be lost, that nothing will be able to snatch them from your hand. Lord, you're the great God. You're the living and true God. You're the one in whom we have our hope. So, Lord, I pray that that all of these things we understand about what is to come would only heighten our understanding of your very character and nature and that that reality would sink deep within us so that in the momentary light afflictions of our day, we would not lose hope. Strengthen your people with that understanding. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.